so much. What an appropriate song for what we're looking at today. And uh, I want to tell you, I am supremely encouraged right now. I am so comforted right now. It has nothing to do with the circumstances. And so I want to look at this chapter 40 and finally finish it. Today we're finishing this chapter. And I want us to look specifically at verse 27. In verse 27 of chapter 40, Isaiah chapter 40, God is telling or expressing what his people, Jacob, Israel, are feeling, what their thoughts are, what they are going through. And this is what he says they are thinking. My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. And you could really say that the rest of this chapter is really God responding to his uncomfortable people, to his distraught people, with the struggle they are facing and bringing them comfort. You see, from a worldly perspective, you could look at what God's people were going through and you can understand why they were feeling this way, right? The southern kingdom, the southern kingdom had watched as their brothers from the northern kingdom had been overthrown, had been destroyed, had been exiled by the Assyrians. It must have been horrific to watch. They had come right up to Judah. Judah is the southern kingdom. They had come right up to them, the Assyrians. But God delivered them. And if you remember why God delivered them, you could find out in chapter 37, verse 35. You see, the people were probably resting on the fact that God had made his covenants through David to them. That there would be a king on the throne. They were probably finding great comfort in that and thinking they will never be overthrown. They will never go into exile. Listen to what God said in chapter 37, verse 35, in light of the Assyrian threat. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. But now, what has happened? But now, Isaiah writes to a people about a hundred and some fifty years later. And he writes to them who are experiencing exile, who've been defeated by the Babylonians. Just as God had promised what happened in chapter 39, verses 6 through 7. And you need to understand how hopeless everything looked for them. You see, for God's people, exile was an incomprehensible thought. You see, no one ever returned from exile. No one ever got back from exile. This had never happened before. You see, exiles were strategically um, strategically worked out in such a way that you would lose your national identity. They were planned so that you would never return. Not only that, but God said that, son, that to Hezekiah the king that some of his sons would become eunuchs to the Babylonian king. So much for the Davidic line, right? For the kings that would continue on. 
And so the only hope, the only hope for for the people of God would be an incredible God-sized effort, a miracle. This, This was impossible to happen. There was no way that anyone could be delivered from the situation they were in. They were as hopeless as you could be. What darkness for the soul. Have you ever been in such a situation where you were not where you wanted to be? Where you couldn't understand why God had brought you to this condition and this situation? Maybe your dreams turn sour. Your marriage is a struggle. Your children are in rebellion. Your job is not as you imagined it. You're sick. Your loved one has died. Religion, the, the, the practice of, of, of worship has become an empty shell in your life. So in such dark, difficult times, it is not uncommon to question, to struggle with the question whether God loves us, whether God cares for us, whether he's forgotten, whether he's just. We see this throughout the Psalms. God, why don't you hear me? Where are you? Uh, I can't see you. You seem like you've forgotten me. Go way back to the garden and you will find even when things were not bad at all, when everything was perfect, there was the seed that Satan had sown into their hearts that maybe God does not love them, that maybe God doesn't have really what's best for them. Right? This is the same thing that's going on here. It's the same question that we ask. So what does God do for such people? What is God's response? God's response is to give them comfort. God's answer is to strengthen their faith so that they will have comfort, to magnify his greatness. That's what God does. And so I want to see here, how does God bring comfort? Not how do you pursue comfort. Not how have you experienced comfort, necessarily. Not even what seems to work. But what is the real path to comfort? What is the real eternal comfort? Where is it found? God is going to show us. And I know some of us are very pragmatic. We say, well, this worked for someone I know. (laughs) You know, this worked in the past. It worked for me. But God is the only path to true comfort. In verse 1 through 11, God brought his comfort through announcing that he is coming and he's going to bring a God-sized salvation. He announces the forgiveness of sins. He announces he is coming in glory. He announces that his word will not fail, unlike human flesh that does fail. And then he says, I have come, behold your God. In verses 9 through 11, God has come as a mighty warrior to defeat his enemies and as a shepherd to guide his people to victory. How much comfort is that? And today we will see in verses 12 through 27 that God brings comfort comfort through the revelation of his incomparable character. Not only the work that God has come to do in that he has come, but also the character of the God who has come to save us. If you want comfort today, you need to understand that your comfort depends on knowing and believing the character of God. You need to understand that. Your comfort depends on knowing and believing the character of God. There is this inseparable uh, inseparable quality between faith, believing and knowing God, and your comfort. You can't separate the two. As your faith goes, so does your comfort go. As your faith grows, so does your comfort grow. Because we need a great big God 
and only there can we find comfort. So in order to strengthen your faith, Isaiah argues in these verses that God is incomparable. And you see that the comparisons are all over the place. It really is a theme throughout these verses. Words like like and comparison and uh, dominate this section to show that God is incomparably great. So be comforted, believers. Be comforted, church. Your God is greater than all of creation. Verse 12. If you were to express how great God is by comparing him to creation, how would he do? Well, in verse 12, we find out that he is able to measure the waters in the hollow of his hand. How great is that? We also see that he is able to measure off the heavens, the vast galaxies. How great is that? He is able to weigh the massive mountains on scales. Is that impressive? How about you? How, are, how great are you in comparison to God in light of creation? How many cups of your hands would it take to fill up, to, to empty the ocean? How many cups would it take to just fill up a bathtub? <laughs> right? Nevertheless, the oceans and the lakes and the seas and their vastness How would you do at measuring the heavens, the stars, the planets, the the galaxies? How long would that take you? You know, the problem is you can't even jump more than two feet. More than, you can't jump that high. And it would take great measures for you to even make it to the moon. You probably wouldn't even make it. How about weighing the massive mountains and the hills? Ever try that? This means that God stands alone as incomparably great. That he is massive, immeasurably great in comparison to all creation. He is in a league of his own. He is holy, holy, holy. He is separate, separate, separate from all others. So the question is, why is God so much greater than creation? That's really the question we ask here is, why is God so much greater? What makes him so much greater? And the answer is really simple. Listen to this. This is the answer. God is so much greater because he stands outside of creation. Because he is the creator. And there is no other creator. As creator, God stands beyond anything that is made. There is creation and there is God. And God stands outside of creation. He's not a part of it. He is infinitely greater than the created world. That is why God can scoop up the waters in the palm of his hands. That's why he can weigh the massive mountains and measure the vast galaxies. You, on the other hand, are limited in your greatness because you are part of creation. Isn't that simple? Doesn't that just make sense? I am sorry, but there are things that you cannot do. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. There are things you cannot do because you are limited as part of creation. And so we ask ourselves, and and this is such a clear answer to the question, why is evolution so popular today? You ever wonder that? Why is it so popular? The answer is because it makes God look small, weak, and powerless, and makes us look like we are large and in charge and in control. 
Rebellious man does not want to be accountable to a mighty God. Rebellious man wants to rob God of his glory and his magnificence. Be comforted, believer. Your God is incomparably wise. In verses 13 through 14. Now, if you were to express the greatness of the wisdom of God, how would you do it? Well, you would compare it to the greatest wisdom of earth, right? So this is my question for you. Has anyone ever given God counsel? Ever? Has anyone ever consulted God with anything? Can anyone ever add one ounce of wisdom to God? You know, would it be helpful for God if he at least had, had like a hundred or so people that he could at least consult and at least listen to his ideas? Would that be helpful? Can anyone add one ounce of wisdom to the Almighty God? How about you? Do you think you could add counsel to God yourself? Have you ever wondered, I, if, if only God would have consulted me about my life. If only God would have consulted me before he made me this way. Or, or, or the, my, my job, you know, if, if only God had consulted me before he made the plans of my life. I could have written such a better script. If he had given me better parents, a better spouse, better kids, a better job, right? Well, Romans 9 speaks of the ridiculousness of asking such questions of our creator. Will the created ask the creator, why did you make me like this? That's a question just speaking and identifying the ridiculousness of such questions. As if God did not know what he was doing. There's no wisdom whatsoever that you could ever add to God. God has nothing to gain from anyone's wisdom ever. God has nothing to gain from your wisdom. You have absolutely nothing to tell God that would be helpful to him. Do you know, think about this, what would be the worst thing in the world that could ever happen? would be the worst thing that could ever happen. The worst thing that could ever happen is this. That God would go to you for counseling and accept anything you have to say. That's the worst thing that could ever happen in the world. Because God is all wise, therefore we have to be vigilant not to let the focus of the church or Bible studies become about everyone's opinions, feelings, thoughts, or ideas. It is so popular today to make our Bible studies about what everyone thinks the verse is saying. About everyone's opinions and ideas. And I love hearing people's thoughts. I love hearing people's ideas. I love hearing what people think. I think that's a good thing. But ultimately, what you or I think does not matter one iota. What matters is what God thinks. That's what matters. Please tell me what God has to say. We need to hear thundering from the church, from God's people. Thus says the Lord. This is what God has to say to us. That's what we need. Some of us are really good with being, with acknowledging that God is all wise until he conflicts with what we want. Until those big important issues to us are in conflict with God's word and his authority. You see, God's word is absolutely clear, isn't it? When it comes to the narrowness of salvation, there is only one way to be saved. God's word is absolutely clear about the lordship of Christ, about a real eternal heaven and hell. Even contemporary hot-button issues, such as the sinfulness of abortion, 
the sinfulness of homosexuality or any other sexual sin or different contemporary issues such as the different complementary roles of men and women in the church. I said some really hot-button issues there, didn't I? What is really amazing is that in one breath we can claim that God is all-wise and all-powerful and that His Bible is true and then contradict ourselves when the difficult matters come up from God's Word. How absurd are we? Do we really think we can add anything to God? Do we really think we can give Him counsel? Do we think we know better than Him? And the answer is no, we cannot. And so my question is this, does this offend you? Does God's word offend you? If so, the issue is not with me, but with God. And you you must submit to him and bow to him and acknowledge that he is the all-wise God and you are not. Perhaps the most revealing question for knowing what you really think of the greatness of God's wisdom is to ask what you think of the wisdom of the cross. You know, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, right? But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God for salvation. What wisdom in displaying his power through the cross. And we see it that way. The church sees it that way. And that is the way we understand whether or not we comprehend the greatness of God's wisdom is how well we see the cross as being the wisdom of God. Do you see it as the supreme wisdom of God today in dealing with our sin and bringing us to salvation? The world thinks it's foolishness, but God's people think it's wisdom. Be comforted, believer. Your God is greater than the nations. Verses 15 through 17. Now, if you were to ask, if you were to ask Judah um, during this time of exile, what were the greatest and most significant um, things around them? I would imagine, we can't go back and ask them, but I would imagine that they would say, oh, it's the nations, obviously. The nations are big. The nations are mighty. They are profound in their size. They appear bigger than God, actually, in some sense, because they had defeated them, right? And it was thought that whoever defeated a nation, their gods were bigger. That was often the way people thought. But what are these great and powerful nations compared to God? Well, think about this for a second. They are like a big bucket of water and one little drop of water falling to the ground. That's the nation is that drop of water. That's what God says. And what is the significance of that little drop of water from a big bucket of water? Well, it's indistinguishable, isn't it? It's small and insignificant. The nations are like dust on the scales. You ever tried weighing dust on scales? It doesn't even move, does it? That little arrow. It doesn't move. It remains there. It doesn't even flutter. Yet they look so impressive to us, don't they? From our perspective. Imagine the great nations trying to make a sacrifice to God. What would that be like? Do you think they could ever come up with a sacrifice that was acceptable and honoring to God with what they had? The great forest of Lebanon was known for being the the greatest of all forests. And yet even all the wood from Lebanon would not suffice for a sacrifice to God that's worthy of his name. How about all the beasts of the field? How about all the wood in the forest and the beasts of the field? If we got them all together, not even they would be a sacrifice worthy of God. But wait, 
Stop. <laughs> Let's stop for a second. Even these comparisons are not quite accurate. You see, the nations are not just small, but are nothing. They are nothing compared to God. You see, without God, they don't even exist. They are literally nothing without God. They don't even exist. They are nothing. Do you ever feel a little goofy trying to compare God to created things? Well, you really should. But the reason that we do this, the reason God does this, is because we can't understand anything unless we compare it to something. We can't. We could never understand anything unless we thought, well, compared to this, this is like this, right? And so we can't understand an incomprehensible God unless we try to compare it with things we know. But we must understand the whole time that God is incomparably great. He is immeasurably great. These are just ways to help us. We can't even, we can't even begin to understand his greatness. We're forced to do this. So be comforted, believer. Because your God is incomparably great, therefore every attempt to duplicate him, to replicate him, to image him forth from creation is stupid and will fail miserably. We see that in verses 18 through 20. Imagine with me. I want you to humor me for a second. Imagine if you were trying to make something to compare with God. How would you go about doing it? Let's try it for a second, okay? Let's just imagine us doing that for a minute. Who would you choose to craft your image? You would choose the best craftsman, right? You would find the best person to make this. Someone who could really doctor it up the best. Who would you choose? What materials would you choose to make this with? You would want the best materials, wouldn't you? Not only the best craftsmen, but also materials. If you were rich, you would want gold. If you were not rich, if you were poor, you would make it out of wood, right? And of course, you would want to make it so it doesn't fall over, right? You don't want it to fall over. That would be humiliating. And so you'd want to add chains to it to somehow anchor it into the ground. Remember Dagon in 1 Samuel 5 verse 2? God made it fall over. That would be humiliating. So how are you doing? How are you doing with your God that you've created? I hope you see the foolishness of trying to make anything that compares with God inside of creation. It is okay to laugh. It is okay to think this is funny. I'm not a comedian. I'm only funny when I'm trying not to be funny. But this is funny. This is hilarious. And that's a good thing for God's people. Because it means that your God is incomparably great. And that it is so foolish that it is humorous to try to make anything that compares to our God. That is good. A good humor. But yet at the same time, after laughing at this idea, we need to be sobered up a little bit. You see, idolatry is at the heart of every sin. Your sin and my sin. And it's idolatry is us making God replacements out of created things. Whenever we love anything in the place of God, we are making an idol. Every time I make an idol, I am saying that something is greater or more magnificent than God. And we find out here is that all we are saying here, everything we're talking about, is really nothing new at all. Everything about God's incomparable character is what we already know. We know this already. You know that God is incomparably great. And that's what we find out in verses 21 through 24. And this is the problem. When darkness comes upon us, when we go into the darkness of this world, when we are struggling, when our faith is wavering, when we can't think straight, we can't make sense of what is before us, when we forget about who God is, 
Did you know that you know the reality of the truth, but by our faith, we forget it. We forget it. And this is what Isaiah is doing here. He's challenging those wavering in the faith with the words, you already know this. Notice verse 21. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? And the answer is yes, they know this. Yes, they know this. They know it from looking around them at creation. They know it from God's word that had been revealed to them. That behind creation stands an almighty, all-powerful God. Romans 1 verse 12, 20 tells us that we know this. Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood from the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that we are without excuse. Did you know that you have the right, you have the freedom, to reject God as your Lord? But did you know that one day you will stand before him and give account to him? You will give account to him. And you will stand in judgment, eternal judgment before the living God. Because you are without excuse. And you will stand condemned for eternity. As if to add an exclamation mark to what he's already said, God gives a summary of what you already know in verses 20 through 24. And imagine this picture. God is sitting above the heavens, above the earth, above creation, above everything. He is sitting there over everything in his rightful place. And from this position, he looks down and sees people as grasshoppers. And he stretches out the heavens like you would some dough making pizza. From there, he does whatever he wants with the authorities and rulers on this earth as if they were puppets. You know, people in their positions are really as nothing to God. From there he plants the seeds. And for a moment they look pretty good, but the next moment he blows on them. And they die, shrivel up, and perish. Everything in creation is transitory. It's all fading, glory. It's all under his direction. And so the answer to the argument of the greatness of God is given to us in the form of a rhetorical question. Verse 25, to whom then will compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. And this is not a question. This is an answer. There is no one in comparison to God. And so if you are to find comfort in seeing this God, you must lift up your eyes. Crane your necks in such a way that it might hurt a little. Crane it above the sphere of creation if you are ever to see him in verse 26. The answer for those struggling with unbelief and feeling defeated, who are walking as if they are in darkness, is to lift up your eyes. Perhaps the greatest view of God's glory that we can see in creation is the heavens and the galaxies that we look above us to see. But if you are to look at the stars with any sense of what you are seeing, you will see the greatness is not really in the stars, but in the creator and the one who made those stars. That's why we, by faith, see reality. And we see the greatness of our God whenever we look around us because we know there is a creator who is immeasurably above everything that is made. Lift your eyes to the stars and don't see the stars, but see the God who created them. Sometimes our situations and our struggles can be like a cloud preventing us from seeing the greatness of God. You know, uh, apparently when there's a storm, if you can get above the storm, you will see that it's clear and calm and the sun is bright. You just need to get above the clouds. And the same is true with faith, right? We are in the storms of life, and we can't see above the storm. All we see is thunder and lightning and rain and darkness. 
and we feel like there's no hope. But above those clouds, above those clouds is a shining sun. Our God is reigning supreme and he is not at all fearful or shaking or at all in any, um, in any danger at all. His plans are being fulfilled and he is accomplishing his purposes. And he is above all. And we must see him that way. And here's the problem of our generation. We are trying really hard to bring God down to our level. To make him more acceptable to unbelieving minds. And whenever we do that, we end up with no God at all. And we end up with no comfort. We must commit ourselves to seeing and exalting God's great name. You know, there are many ways we can do this. There are many ways this might look like in our lives. But one practical way that I try to do this is when I do devotions at night with my kids, I make sure, I require, and demand that we take them seriously. We can play around for 99% of the day, but we honor God when it comes to learning about Him, and we take it seriously. And my question for you, is this really harsh? Am I a joy sucker? You see, if we don't model and teach that God is to be honored, how will we ever learn? How will we ever learn? I am responsible to teach my kids that God is to be esteemed and to be honored. So I do not apologize at all for teaching, trying to teach my kids that God is to be honored. So how should you respond to this comfort? Verses 27 to 31 tells us how to respond to this incomparable God. We should not respond by doubting or questioning his might, wisdom, or care. In verse 27 through 28. And I imagine we all have felt this way before. We all have struggled with this thought that we began with in the message in verse 27. And notice that this is God's people and they're continually asking this. That's the form of the verb here. My way is hidden from God. My way is disregarded by God. My justice has been forgotten. But what does God say in the midst of the struggle? Does he say, oh, it's normal, it's human for you to struggle with this? Does he just leave it at that? Does he say that at all? Well, no. He challenges their thoughts. He says, do you not know? Why do you say this? Do you not know who God is? Have you not heard about the incomparable God? This sounds so insensitive, doesn't it? I mean, these people are going through horrific things. How can God do this? But God is not being mean at all. God is calling them to their senses. He's bringing us to the only place of comfort. This is the most loving way God could talk to his suffering people. It is loving for God to challenge the unbelief of his suffering people. God tells them that he is the everlasting God, the creator. He does not grow weary and he knows everything. That's what God says to suffering and struggling people. So limited creatures like you and me, therefore must conclude That if we are to be strengthened, it must come from our unlimited creator. In verses 29 through 30. You are limited and weak because you are created. You are a creature. That's what comes with being a, a creature. It's just part of the deal. Even at our best, we get tired and weak. You know, I do a little bit and I get exhausted. Reminding me that I'm a creature. God is unlimited. It has no power or weak. It has no weaknesses, I should say. He's the creator. He stands outside of creation. Has no limitations. God is therefore the only source of strength. And when I say he is the only source of strength, what I mean is he is the only comforter. Strength and comfort are similar ideas. 
We are strengthened by being comforted. God lacks no strength. So how then can you be connected to the strength? How can you be comforted? And there's one condition for that in verse 31. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. We are connected to God's strength through faith. And faith is another way of saying that we must wait on the Lord. You see, what does it mean to wait on the Lord? What does that mean? And the answer is, it could be translated hope or confident expectation. And hope and confident expectation is kind of like saying forward-looking faith. Faith looking to the future. Being confident and expecting of God. To, To wait means to give up our frantic efforts to save ourselves. It means to depend on God for salvation. It means to trust His process in His way. And that is so hard. To trust His process. To trust His way of saving us. To wait means to be confident in His eventual action on our behalf. God is coming. He will save us. And what does it look like? Well, look at the men of faith in the Bible. The men and women of faith in the Bible. God told Abraham, didn't he, that he would have children. And as many as the stars in the sky. But Abraham could not possibly have children. And he waited year after year after year. But what did Abraham do? He looked confidently with expectation at God. He believed in God, trust in God. That's what it means to wait on God. It looks like it's impossible. But God is faithful. That's what it means to wait on God. Casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. That's what it means to wait on God. And we have an advantage today. We have a more full revelation in Jesus Christ because of the cross. Jesus is our reason to wait. God did not send second best. He sent the best. Not only that, but the cross give us the greatest vision of his glory. You see his incomparable character displayed through the cross. Every dimension of his character in full glory and greatness. So what is the result, the promise for all who wait on him? All who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. And the idea is whether walking or running, whatever we're doing, we shall not grow faint. And we shall not be crushed, but rather we shall rise up with wings. Our wings shall effortlessly rise up and we shall fly like eagles. What a great promise. But you will never rise like eagles until you first learn to wait on the Lord. The cure for the believer struggling with discomfort today, if you are struggling with discomfort, battling unbelief, is to behold your incomparable God. You don't need formulas. You don't need trite sayings. You don't need a self-esteem boost. You need to see your God raw and unedited because there is no one like him. You see, God is relentlessly pursuing the comfort and the well-being of his people. And he does this by magnifying himself through his word. That is why I am calling the church, I am passionately calling the church to look up to God, for in him is your salvation. There is no comfort outside of him. If you are not saved, you need to run to him. You need to run to him, for only in there can you find comfort. And I will close with Psalm 42, verse 11, as a summary of this entire chapter. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God.
Let's pray. Dear Father, you are a mighty God. Lord, you are above the heavens. Your greatness and glory is incomprehensible. Our minds cannot comprehend them. We don't understand outside of creation. We only understand inside of creation. But Lord, you are unlimited. And God, how foolish is it to turn anywhere else for comfort and strength. God, forgive me. Forgive me this week for looking elsewhere for comfort. Forgive me for looking elsewhere, elsewhere for strength. Lord, only in you is there comfort. Only in you is there salvation. Oh Lord, turn our eyes towards you today. Lord, may we be encouraged by the reality of how great our God is. And if anyone stands outside of your favor, if anyone stands rightly condemned in judgment by our righteous and, and wise God, Lord, may they run to you today for salvation. May you impress upon their hearts and their minds the reality of their terrible condition of where they stand right now. And may they see that there is comfort only found in our great and mighty Savior, Jesus Christ. And may we tell the world about our great God. And may we see you everywhere we go this week. And may we proclaim your greatness. In Jesus' name, amen.